What's up, Wildside Besties and Baddies? I'm Bailey. And I'm Chelsea. And we're here to walk you through the wild sides. From homicides to hostides and everything in between. We're so glad you're here, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. What's up, Wildside? It's Wildside Wednesday. Ooh. I hope that you're having a great hump day. Hump day. As always, we want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to Denise and Connie for leaving us a review and a like on Facebook. We really appreciate you. You guys are going to have to be patient with me. Some of these usernames on um, Apple are, I- I'm I'm just going to try to guess, but Hilo fijo 55 and then also a super special shout out to husky i think he's had to endure some uh (laughs) getting him pushed out of his comfort zone but he left us a great review and we love you husky we sent him a for christmas we sent him a wild side blanket and it was like number one fan and he was like dude it was great he's he really has been such a great support And then also, we wanted to remind you guys, next week is going to be our interview week. Interview. And we're so excited. So this is going to be the interview with Dr. Feldman. Yes. He is the expert in factitious disorders, Munchausen by proxy abuse, and then a survivor, Jordan Hope. And Jordan is a survivor and an expert. And so it's going to be a really interesting conversation. It was a really cool interview. You know, Bailey and I talked about it where we are struggling with wanting to really show that we are genuinely excited about this stuff without you guys thinking that we are just making this all up, how excited we are. (laughs) But literally every single interview that we have done, we are just like, these people are amazing. Like y'all are the goats. This is so cool. So mm-hmm. I hope that you know that these interviews really are that cool. Like you are going to be smarter, better, all those things because of it. Um, and then also we are going to be having interviews that are going to be dropping here over the next few weeks. I and mean, we have a criminologist. We have a cognitive forensic psychologist. What? Who's the coolest we dude have ever. A Oh, dude, he he was amazing. Amazing. Dr. Um, K. Oh, Dr. K was awesome. Dr. Penn was awesome. We have... Everybody's been awesome, an, honestly. We have the coolest zoologist who's like, writes and dude, knows Dr. about Bill. cannibalism from, like, the zoology aspect of cannibalism. So amazing. And then we also are going to be having retired FBI profilers. Yep. I'm kind of blown away at how many people are just like yeah yeah oh, and then like, mr mr crosby yep yep we've got a criminal defense attorney who's agreed to come on we've got a false confessions um psychologist who specializes in false confessions um i'm trying to get in touch with the innocence project talk about wrongful convictions i mean we've got a lot of cool stuff that we're trying to line up throughout the year yeah so if you are fellow, you know, geek out nerds like us and you have 
a tribe of geek out nerds like us, let them know. We have seriously some of the coolest, most just mind blowing interviews. Yeah. Now, Bailey's obviously more well versed uh, in this stuff than I am, but both of us truly walk away from these interviews and we're just like, I had wow. no idea. That is yeah. amazing. So, like I said, and if anybody yeah. out there knows, a retired hostage negotiator i am i have my hopes for that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're gonna try to get in touch with some organizations that work with um sex trafficking <laughs> so yeah we've got a whole bunch of stuff that we're that we're really working on so yeah or if you guys have um a topic that you're like you know i oh, i sure. kind of have heard about this but i don't know much about it or you're like i have heard about this and i want you guys to cover it just send us in the point us in the right direction and we'll see what we can do yeah so thank you guys again for the support and we think the interviews are going to be really really cool so if true crime if the stories aren't really or the cases aren't really your jam then hopefully the interviews are so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. well today chelsea i am so excited because what kind of cases do you love? We just talked about it not too long ago, and it's like a newer identified kind of umbrella. I mean, I like brain scans. You like white-collar crimes. I like white-collar crimes! How can I forget this? This is actually a white-collar turned red-collar crime. Ooh, 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 I forgot that's my all-time favorite. <laughs> I know. This is what happens when you get close to 40 is you forget the stuff that you say like a day ago yeah Ooh, i'm so excited chelsea loves white collar and red collar crimes I love and them so much. i have a really awesome red collar case for you guys today are you going to talk about what red collar means and what white nope. collar means nope okay do you want me to kind of do a quick rundown of what that means well i i think it will explain itself right It'll explain itself. Okay. Yeah. Because I have like a little conclusion at the end of this. Perfect. And for some reason, I keep finding cases from the 80s and 90s, and I have learned that these are my favorite decades for true crime cases. Okay. But I think statistically, honestly, I, I was reading something the other day, and I think crime really was peaked in like the 70s and 80s. I think 80s yeah. were kind of a really high point for crime. I don't know as to why. Maybe we can get a sociologist to explain to us why there was so much criminal activity in that time. But yeah, there's a there's a lot happening in yeah. the 80s and early. Well, they're my favorite episodes. Like anytime somebody has a good solid 80s or 90s time frame true crime case, I am in it to win it mm -hmm. so if that's not your thing sorry guys but it just happens it just happened to kind of be back to back but mm -hmm. i still think it's pretty cool mm -hmm. are you ready for some true crime yes i am <laughs> okay. or is, is, is it singing is it a, a singing true crime i was trying to do like a space jam vibe <laughs> and then you came out with the sound of music vibe <laughs> Everybody get up. It's time to jam now. Yeah. We much got better. some true crime going on. Welcome to the podcast. It's your chance. Do your dance at the wild side. There it is. Uh-huh. 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 All right. So 
this story takes us to New York. New York. I'm walking here. All right, let's do this. So, on one warm evening on April 12, 1982, in the heart of Manhattan, mm-hmm. 37-year-old Margaret Barbara finished work for the day and was walking to her car, which was parked at the West Side Pier 92nd parking lot. When she got to her car, she tried to put her key in to open the door and found out that it was jammed. So she walked around her car to enter from the passenger side. Unaware of the light-colored van parked on the passenger side next to her BMW, as Margaret leaned to unlock her car, a masked man leaned through the window of the van and shot her point-blank in the back of the head. Margaret was dead before she hit the ground. Shut up. Margaret's killer picked up her body and began putting her in the back of the van. As this guy was loading her body into the van, three employees who had just gotten off of work, Leo Kiranuki, 54, Robert Schultz, 58, and Edward Benford, 55, were walking to their nearby parked cars. This startled this masked assailant. Margaret's killer shouted at the men, yelling, what did you see? The masked assailant ran to the nearest CBS employee and shot him in the head at close range. The other two CBS employees took off, but the killer caught up to them, shooting each of the remaining two witnesses in the back of the head, killing them instantly. What in the Mad Max is going on (laughs) around here? So we're dealing with four bodies in the span of like three minutes. Autopsies would later determine that Margaret Barbara and Leo Karanuki, 54, were both shot from a distance of at least 12 to 18 inches. Edward and Robert were shot with a gun touching or almost touching the skull, so almost execution style. Oh my gosh. Within literal minutes, this normal Everyday West Side parking lot in the middle of Manhattan saw four brutal executions in quick succession. This unidentified killer hurriedly stuffed Margaret's body into the van, the van, slammed the doors, peeled out, and disappeared into rush hour traffic. He didn't take the other bodies? He just left no. those other bodies there? Yes. Yes. And this is like late afternoon, middle of the day parking lot. You better tell me that there are drugs involved in this case because that fool is... There are zero drugs involved in this case. What? So what's wild is that all of this took place... Oh, I just said that. In daylight, perhaps unbeknownst to the assailant, there were other people in the parking garage at that time who witnessed the horrific series of events and not just the three CBS employees that he executed. Okay. There was a fourth CBS employee, Angelo Sticka, who was trying to catch up with the three of his buddies, the three guys who were shot, Mm -hmm. when he heard popping sounds. He was about 50 feet away when he witnessed the massacre of his colleagues and fled to his car. Crap. There was also reported that there was a parking lot attendant who was a witness as well. And so you're going to see how 
this is all going to make sense in a little bit. Right. You're painting. You're you're Bob Rossing this picture yes. for us. Happy Just little no happy little trees. Yeah. <laughs> so within seconds, 911 operators were being flooded with calls about the incident in the rooftop parking garage. Detectives quickly arrived on scene and were met with a pretty gnarly sight. There were multiple bloodstains on the pavement, three dead bodies, with three spent 22 caliber shell casings close by, a pair of sunglasses, and shoes scattered all around the pavement. It was apparent that this was an absolute slaughter. There were shoes? Shoes. Like it like they fell out of their shoes? Yes. You know, okay, but I have heard of this happening. Like I first I don't know where it was that I read that a lot of times it's like people will be shot out of their shoes. Like, that's kind of a thing, apparently. Yeah. And I think we talked about this in the Melody Roar one with people oh. missing their shoes. Like, yeah. it's real. It creeps me out. Yeah. Well, and it was also in the Bayou Strangler. Oh, yeah. Remember? The shoes. The shoe yeah. thing. Yeah. So the next morning on April 13th, Margaret's body was found dumped in an alley in lower Manhattan with a single bullet wound to her head. Investigators were quickly able to positively identify the body as 37-year-old Margaret Barbara, and the, based off of the evidence that they had so far and the eyewitness accounts, all four victims were shot execution style. And so what police inferred from this is that this was a professional hit job. I mean, wasn't hit jobs in the 80s like the go-to? I mean, like I said, I'm pretty sure that it's in all of the Mark Wahlberg movies. Yeah. yeah. So the question is, why would someone attack a woman in daylight, shooting her point blank range in the back of the head, then brutally execute three other witnesses on scene? They weren't sure if these individuals were all targets. They weren't sure if Margaret was the target. These cops are just like, this is wild, right? Okay. There were no reports of it appearing to be a robbery gone wrong, and there were no reports of a crazed ex-lover of Margaret's. Mm. What investigators quickly learned after identifying the body as Margaret Barbara is that there is an eerie coincidence. Oh. Margaret was actually the second victim of a similar crime, and with this victim shared a link. Just three months earlier, on January 5th, 1982, Margaret's co-worker, 46-year-old Jenny Sue Chin, was abducted in Ridgewood, Queens by a masked assailant after Chin was leaving Margaret Barber's apartment. So she had her colleague, Jenny, mm -hmm. who was visiting her at her house, Margaret. Right. Jenny leaves, is abducted from in front of the house, and since then has not been seen. Like to this day? I'll get there. Oh, gosh. Okay. Oh, my mercy. Two witnesses. Oh, my mercy. I know. Two witnesses saw an assailant in a ski mask come up behind Jenny and shove her into her own station wagon. I have a quick question for you. Have you ever actually seen a skier wearing a ski mask? No. Why do they call them ski masks? I think they used to be ski masks until the robbers took them over. 
and skiers were like screw you man so they had to create their own skiers were like we can't have anything nice can't have yeah can you imagine like 12 of those guys going down black diamonds like going 30 miles an hour on their skis with ski masks that is a true lies that's an arnold schwarzenegger (laughs) arnold schwarzenegger (laughs) true lies movie (laughs) the only thing you'd be missing is tom cruise running in the background yeah so again two witnesses saw an assailant in a ski mask come up behind jenny shove her into her own station wagon he then entered the driver's side and drove away Jenny's vehicle was discovered abandoned nine days later on West 36th Street in Manhattan. When Jenny's car was discovered, she was absolutely nowhere to be found. All that was left behind were bloodstains in her car and 22 caliber shell casings. Ooh, same caliber. So what are the odds that two women who were colleagues, who knew each other, both met violent fates only three months apart. I think that's not coincidental. Yeah, it's definitely not a quinky dink. So investigators thought the same. How is it that we now have two women who knew each other, worked together, both were assassinated by a man in a mask and shot with a twenty-two caliber gun? At this point, there were two leads for investigators to run with. One. Getting the shell casings at both crime scenes and running ballistics to see if they were fired from the same weapon. And two, talk to the common link. Obviously, the two women's shared employer. The first lead proved fruitful. Ballistics found that the twenty-two caliber shell casings from the parking garage slayings and the one recovered from Jenny's car were, in fact, all fired from the same weapon. Well, you think they were, but thanks to Dr. K. Yeah, I was literally thinking that. I was like, how do we know? How do we know? Thank you, Dr. K, for turning us into the ultimate cynics. Yes. I'm going to send him this episode and be like, you ruined science for me. You ruined it. You ruined our lives, Dr. K. But you're amazing and you're beautiful and thank you. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So we now have four victims, excuse me, five victims so the three CBS employees. Are you Margaret, saying CBS as in like the drugstore? CBS as the network. Oh, as in the network. CBS, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So now we have five victims that were all killed by the same masked assailant. Why? Drug. <laughs> Drugs. Mm-mm. Working on their second potential lead, Margaret and Jenny's shared employer, the Candor Diamond Company. It was identified that Margaret was a secretary, excuse me, secretary for Candor, and Jenny was the bookkeeper. What's more is that when investigators were digging into these two women's lives to figure out why they would be a target of such a horrific attack, embezzlement, they found something startling. Fraud. In April of 1982, just a month before her death, Margaret Barbara had recently pled guilty in a federal district court in Manhattan to conspiracy to commit fraud. Well, I guessed it right. I said fraud. You did. Um, do you want to take a guess involving what? Embezzlement. Yep. She was involved. She was involved in a $6 million finance fraud scheme at the Candor Diamond Company where she worked. Dang. 
The Candor Diamond Company was thrown into involuntary bankruptcy after its primary lender, the John P. McGuire Company, discovered that Candor had been using phony invoices for collateral for loans. Hmm. What's even more is that Margaret had agreed to testify as a witness at an upcoming trial before the federal grand jury. Oh, man. This has given me this has given me Christine Elkins vibes, right? Yeah, I was like Christine Elkins. It's just bad. So she had already testified at a closed hearing, and now only eighteen days prior to her murder, she had agreed to testify at the upcoming trial as a witness against her own company and against her own former employer, Irwin Margolis, at Candor. I feel like. Something I should start putting on my resume for a future employer is like, and I'm not smart enough to commit fraud. Oh, right. But said anybody who actually would commit fraud, so that might backfire on me. But seriously, I'm like, how do you launder money? How do you embezzle? Like, how do you do this stuff? Did I ever tell you the time that I was like this minion in the addiction field? It was like my first job in the addiction field. This was years, 15, 12, 15 years ago. And the CEO of the company pulled me aside and threatened to fire me and or sue me for embezzling via paper. What? So I had gotten permission from a boss to do schoolwork, and I had printed oh. some paper for school. I do remember that. And it, it accidentally printed like 300 pages. I do, I do And the front that. office secretary like snitched on me. And I wasn't trying to keep it a secret. Like I, I didn't mean to. And I recycled the paper. I used it because it was just anyway. So she pulls me aside and I was just like, hey, I'm really sorry about the whole printing accident. She was like, you're lucky that I'm not suing you for embezzlement. (laughs) And so now when people are like, you know, what's your career been like? And I'm like, let me tell you something. People are toxic. And they're like, why would you say that? And I was like, well, let me tell you. I I almost got, I almost had a record for yeah for embezzlement because i printed too much paper for college you're like sister i'll buy you a 26 dollar ream of paper i told her i was like you can take that out of my check if you need to she was like no and i was like well then why are we here like what are we doing right i'm sorry susan i really i apologize (laughs) so um okay Getting back to the case. So now we know that Margaret Barbara was a federal witness against her employer and that Margaret was executed by a masked man in a light-colored van. Mm. What's more terrifying is that after her colleague Ginny's disappearance in January of that year, Margaret's brother shared with reporters that she was terrified. So Ginny happened Ginny happened in January and then Margaret was the following April. Just what? Three months later, type yes. of thing. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very quick. According to Lee Komaji's article, Margaret had moved into her brother's home in Pennsylvania for two weeks in January after Ginny's disappearance. And she stayed there for a couple of weeks. And in um, February, she stayed there for three or four days. And again in March, she stayed 
trying to get herself together to get another job. Margaret's brother said the last time that he saw Margaret was on March 17, 1982, and shortly thereafter, he is quoted as saying, I was listening to the news Monday night, and I heard a girl was killed in the vicinity of where she was employed. He thought they got Margaret. Oh, gosh. Oh, that so that's how chills. he found out. Like, yeah. literally gives me chills. So just days after finding Margaret's body, investigators began to hone in on one suspect in particular, Donald J. Nash. New York police and FBI officials gave this account of how they were led to Nash, who was using the alias of Mr. Bowers. Oh. So when you hear me say Nash or Bowers, it's the same person. Interchangeable. Okay. Yeah. Police had obtained the application forms of all the people who had rented a space in that parking garage and compared them with the application forms that had vans on those application forms mm. and the application forms from the month of April. Mm. Lo and behold, Mr. Bowers, or Donald Nash, had in fact rented a space on April 6th for a month for a van that resembled the getaway vehicle. Huh. Apparently, Nash's van was the only one that matched the description given by a witness. And we're also going to be interviewing, like, eyewitness testimonies and oh. how that's, like, nothing. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, get ready for that bubble to be popped as well. Yeah. In this parking spot application, Nash gave a fake home address and license plate number, but listed his telephone number, and they were able to track him that way. Investigators said that they discovered that Nash had a record of arrests and convictions, so he had a rap. Mm -hmm. He had been arrested at least nine times since 1952, since he was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. So once investigators identified Nash, they began a multi-state bureau surveillance team to place Nash under surveillance, obviously unbeknownst to him. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Shortly after that, Nash was arrested in Kentucky because he had an unrelated felony warrant for his arrest. That's another thing that I'm like, I think if I were wanting to get into criminal activity, I, I think I would make sure that I wasn't leaving a trail of like proverbial breadcrumbs. You know what I mean? Like yeah. try to make sure that you don't have outstanding warrants in mm -hmm. you know like five different states so i encourage everybody at this point to try to keep an open mind on what this whole thing oh no okay so as i said he was arrested in kentucky when he was arrested he was driving a van similar to that of the shootings but it had recently been painted black after searching the van, police recovered 22 caliber shell casings. Soon after that, a search warrant was signed for an expanded search of Nash's bungalow and garage in New Jersey, as well as in the bed of a creek that runs past his back porch. Okay. During this search, police recovered black paint similar to that of the paint on the van 
as well as several 22 caliber shell casings in Nash's home. Now, another kind of similarity to the Christine Elkins case, the FBI's underwater search and recovery team was called in to the search of the Wakak Creek for any evidence that may be hidden there. Interestingly, there, divers found additional 22 caliber casings in the creek. Mm. I mean, eh, yeah. Right. I mean, but yeah. I don't know. I'm like, eh, you shoot stuff. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the evidence recovered from Nash's home and in the creek would later be used in court to convict Nash. The bullets recovered from the creek, his van, and his home all matched the 22 caliber shell casings found in the parking garage of the quadruple murders, as well as in Jenny's abandoned vehicle. Mm-hmm. The same gun used in all four, presumably five homicides. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what was Donald Nash's motive? Once Donald Nash was arrested, it would eventually come to light that this was a white-turned-red-collar crime. Okay? It was a messy hit-for-hire plot by the greed and corrupt upper echelon at the now-defunct Candor Diamond Company. Okay. Now, this is where I wanted to bring something up. What's interesting and maybe a little scary is that there were pieces in several reports indicating that the, there was a possibility that Donald Nash may not actually have been the perpetrator in these murders. Do you, well, do you think he was the fall guy? I don't know. Ooh. We'll get into it. Ooh. According to an article by Andrew Geller, authorities originally shared that Donald Nash, or Mr. Bowers, said that he did not, that he did not match the initial description of the killer, And he initially was not the prime suspect, but a person of interest because he may have known the gunman's identity. What's even more is that during Nash's trial, the jurors also said that the holdouts voted for acquittal mainly because of a last minute piece of evidence, which was a 22 caliber shell casing found on April 29th in, in the home of Mr. Nash's nephew. Now, There was a lot of, this would have turned into like a two-part if I included all of this back and forth. Mm -hmm. But so Donald Nash's nephews initially said that they believed their uncle was the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. And then they recanted under oath. So they recanted, signed an affidavit saying that they were lying because they were angry with him. So there's... And there's a lot. And, of course, these are all clippings from 1980, 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the articles, like, aren't available, you know, or I right. couldn't find access to. But there was a lot that went into this case. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds a lot like kind of he said, she said, you know, yeah. Yeah. stuff going on. A ballistics expert testified that the casing, along with three others found on Mr. Mr. Nash's property, had been fired from the same gun that killed the four people in the parking lot. But according to an article by Selwyn Robb, some of the jurors believed the cops had planted the last shell. So jurors who have access to 
all of the information that some of us do not have access to, were skeptical, even amongst themselves, that cops had planted some of that evidence. What's even more is the tire tracks found by Margaret Barbara's body did not match the tires on Nash's van. Mm. Yeah. Also, to my knowledge, the murder weapon has never been found, even though divers scoured the creek behind Nash's home for hours. So they never found the actual gun. Mm. Just the casings? Just the shell casings, yeah. On the other side of this coin, however, it is it was reported that Nash was linked to the crime through bloodstains and hairs found in the van and on Margaret Barbara's body. However, Nash's attorney, Mr. Hockheiser, argued that the forensic evidence was inconclusive and Nash was half a mile from the pier only minutes after the shootings and that because Nash was partially blind, he lacked the physical ability to commit the crimes. Isn't this crazy? What the, I was going to say, what was his, do we know what his alibi was? Nash's defense team did not present any expert witnesses to challenge the forensic testimony, and Nash did not testify himself either. So when you guys listen to Dr. K's, our interview with Dr. K, like his job literally is to research human bias in forensic science and he basically says forensic science isn't as black and white as we all thought it was Mm -hmm. especially things like handwriting analysis and ballistics Mm -hmm. and this is the 80s right Right. so this kind of put a whole new lens for me after talking with dr k about this case Mm -hmm. not about this case but it puts a new lens on this case after talking to dr k Mm -hmm. Okay, so at Nash's trial in 1984, the prosecution declared that the owners of the Candor Diamond Company, Irwin and Madeline Margolis, had hired Nash to kill the two women, Margaret and Jenny, out of fear of their incriminating testimonies to the multi-million dollar fraud scheme. It is reported that initially, Erwin Margolis had intended for Margaret and Jenny to take the fall of his fraud and wrongdoings if they were ever investigated. Hmm. However, he found out that Margaret and Jenny had kept records of the fixed books. Oh, snap. Yeah, that would, that would be problematic. He was initially planning to frame these two women, but they also kept their own personal records of the fixed books. They were smarter than the average bear. Yeah. So when he discovered this, it is believed that this is when he hired a hitman. Evidence presented at the trial included the Margolis paying Nash $16,000 for executing Margaret, Barbara, and Ginny Tzu Chin and an additional 5000 for killing the three CBS employees. I mean, not that I'm going to hire a hitman anytime soon, but I don't think I would hire a partially blind hitman. Well, he probably didn't put that on his application, Chelsea. <laughs> he wasn't forthcoming with no, his... No, he was not. With his, I, th- I don't think we're allowed to say disability anymore, but... 
In the 80s, it was considered a disability. Yeah. So it does not appear that Nash had premeditated the murder of the CVS employees, but when they tried to intervene, so all reports were when they saw this guy, you know, manhandling this woman, putting her in the back of his van, they mm-hmm. spoke up. And that is what prompted arguably Nash's execution of them and the witnesses, like leaving no witness behind. Right. But he did so because, because there were other witnesses that he didn't know. So he couldn't see them. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Shit. So inappropriate. I feel like I'm in church and I'm not supposed to be laughing, but I can't help it. (laughs) Okay. So because of that mess... Erwin Margolis had paid that additional 5000 for the three murders of the CBS employees. So it wasn't planned, but he ended up paying in compensation for it. He paid after the fact? Yes. Oh. It was identified during Nash's trial that on the evening the murders occurred, Donald Nash had sat quietly in his van for Margaret Barber to get off of work. Now, this is the creepiest thing. Wanting Margaret to enter her vehicle from the passenger side so it would be easier for him to kill her and abduct her, he jammed the lock on the driver's side with thin wooden slivers. Mm -hmm. So he stuck wooden slivers in her keyhole so she had to walk around the other side. I think they're called shimmies. It said slivers. I mean, I did major in carpentry, but whatever. So... Just so you guys know, if your driver's door is ever out of commission and there's a car parked on the passenger side, do not enter into your car from the passenger side. You walk away. This is this is more for the people who are still driving cars that you have to manually unlock. Whatever the case is. Whatever you the do case have is. a lot of phobias around vehicles. I do. Remember when you were like, I just know that someone's going to cut my Achilles tendon from underneath a parked vehicle? Didn't you used to look under your car? I still look in the backseat of my car. Yeah. Is it from the Urban Legend movie? I don't remember. I just always look in my backseat because I'm always thinking that someone's laying back there. Turn around every now and then. So after he jammed her lock on her driver's door... He loaded her in his van and then dumped her approximately six hours later where she was found the following day, as we had talked about. Following a lengthy trial, Donald Nash was found guilty of executing Margaret Barbara and murdering the three CBS employees using a 22 caliber pistol. He was also convicted of conspiring to kill Jenny Sue Chen, the former bookkeeper at Candor. Sadly, to this day, Jenny's body has never been found. Jenny's body has never been found? No. Dude, start licking in 55-gallon drums. Yeah. It's probably in a drum somewhere. Because, again, I think that's what they did in the 80s. According to the Dingrove collection write-up at UVA Law, Nash's prosecutor brought a grocery cart to court filled with forensic evidence, such as hair samples, a bloody bed sheet, 
and shell casings. I should say it's not Nash's prosecutor, the prosecutor at Nash's trial. Oh, okay. Yeah. So apparently, again, I think there's a lot of information that we don't know Mm -hmm. that only was privy to the people directly involved in this trial. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's what we have. So on May 24th, 1983, Nash was convicted of four counts of second degree murder and a single count of conspiracy. He was sentenced to 100 years in prison. Though this was a known case of murder for hire, Nash was the only person to have been indicted for the killings. Now, just kind of like as an interesting additive here, 10 years after Nash went to prison in 1994, he would again be charged with homicide. This time it was for a fellow inmate. While incarcerated at Auburn Correctional Facility, Nash used a foot-long piece of wood embedded with several side-by-side razor blades to attack another prisoner, Roy Tucker, who was 46. Tucker would later die from his injuries. Dang. So even though there may be some question as to Nash being the right guy in the actual murders that he was convicted of, he did kill a man in prison, so legally speaking, kind of that point is moot now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Donald Nash passed away in prison on June 2nd, 2016. Now, I'm sure you guys are asking, what about Erwin Margolis and his wife? Right? Well, that's what I wanted to ask. Yeah. So, Erwin Margolis and his wife, Madeline... They subsequently pled guilty to the fraud charges. Can I just say that I really love the name Madeline, though? I just Mm -hmm. think it's such a pretty... Like, why are you a criminal, Madeline? You have a beautiful name. Yeah. Well, she wanted beautiful things. Oh, that's true. To match. And she outspent herself. Yeah. (laughs) She was trying to live above her means. Yeah. She had champagne taste with a beer pocketbook, apparently. Boo. So in 1982, Erwin Margulies pled guilty to 51 counts of federal indictment charging him with the $5.7 million fraud. Owie. According to an article by Philip Shinnan, the main witness in Erwin Margulies' trial was his former lawyer and confidant, Henry Osterreicher. So the main witness was... Irwin, the head dude at this diamond company who committed all this fraud, his buddy slash attorney, Henry. Dang. After a promise of full immunity for his testimony, Osterreicher said that he and Irwin Margolis, Margolis had arranged the murders in December of 1981. I One of these days, I, I wish that I... And maybe I should just research it on my own, but I I really would love to know when we say full immunity. I mean, does that literally mean full immunity? Yeah, I think it depends on what the DA approves in their plea, in their plea, in their bargain. Yeah. I think it's kind of up to the DA from my understanding, which is limited. Yeah. So they planned the murders back in December of 1981. Okay. Osterreicher said to his 
recollection mm. was that each murder cost $8,000. Osterreicher conceded on the witness stand that he had also participated in Erwin Margoli's scheme at Candor to defraud another company of millions of dollars by submitting invoices from fictitious sales. So he was in on it. However, because of his deal for immunity in exchange for testifying against Irwin, Osterreicher was not charged with any of the murders. What's wild is that Osterreicher also admitted that he and Irwin Margolis had also conspired to hire a hit on the lawyer who uncovered the fraud at Candor. Allie. Yeah. I mean, they were like... So they're just planning left and right. I was going to say, they're like, come hell or high water. We're yeah. keeping our monies and our, you know... Fake insurance accounts. Yeah. Because we don't really have any money. And our Miami Vice lifestyle. Because Madeline and Irwin transferred all of it to a Switzerland bank account. Yeah, they did. They had, a whole bunch of, they had a whole bunch of stuff going on. A whole bunch. But like many men in power... Erwin Margolis was eventually acquitted of the conspiracy to murder charge in what? his involvement in the conspiracy to kill that lawyer who uncovered the fraud. What so they acquitted mean? him of that. What do you mean they acquitted him? Yep. They acquitted <sighs> him. Osterreicher testified at Erwin Margolis' trial that Margolis decided to kill Margaret Barbara and Jenny Su Chin because he thought that they were cooperating with the federal prosecutors. I hope you I hope you stub your pinky toe every time you get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. I hope you're cursed with having to stub your pinky toe. Mm-hmm. Every time. Yeah. Or step on Legos. The whole the rest of your life. Yeah. Based on the evidence collected along with Henry Henry Osterreicher's testimony. On June 21st, 1984, Erwin Margolis was sentenced to 50 years and 50 years to life in prison for the conspiracy murder plot that also led to the death of the CBS employee technicians, CBS employees. Okay, so but he so he was found guilty for that. For that. He was acquitted yeah. for the other murder to hire plot for the attorney. Okay. Yeah. But he was found guilty for mm -hmm. for conspiracy for, for the murder of yeah, those four people. Gotcha. Okay. According to an article by Philip Sheenan, Justice Eve M. Preminger of the State Supreme Court of Manhattan resided over the trial of the Margolis and was the one who passed down the sentence. In Margolis' sentencing, Justice Priminger stated, quote, There is no more horrible crime than a contract murder. Nothing in your background calls for sympathy, end quote. Mm -hmm. She added that the murder plot had demonstrated, quote, cowardice for using another person to carry it out. She not wrong. So she was like, not only do I not give you sympathy, but you're kind of a bitch. I mean, she's not wrong. Right. After reviewing Mr. Margolis's background, she said she could find no reason for leniency. All right, Eve. Although his plot ended in the murder of the CBS technicians, Mr. Margolis was not charged with their deaths. 
he was only convicted for conspiracy. Okay. He wasn't convicted for actual murder or homicide. Okay. Well, because he didn't physically carry it out. Right. Right? Is that how that works? I guess. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know from watching, you know, crime shows, but that's about it. Yeah. Like, just because you plan something doesn't mean you execute it, no pun intended. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I think that... I think that falls on the hands of, I guess, Nash, right, in this case? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So although this was kind of only a 50-year prison sentence, it was essentially a life sentence for Irwin because this was on top of the 28-year prison sentence for his involvement in the fraud at his diamond company. Oh, Okay. And he was, I think he was in his 50s-ish at the time when this happened. Yeah. Erwin Margolis' wife, Madeline, was sentenced to three years for her involvement in the fraud scheme. Madeline. What's so unfortunate is that this arguably could have been prevented. Margaret Barbara's mother, Jacqueline, believed that Margaret had not been sufficiently protected as a federal witness. During the investigation into Margaret's death, investigators discovered that Erwin Margolis, her boss at Candor, had found out that she was a cooperating witness with, which led to her assassination. <laughs> Court records indicate that former U.S. Attorney Stephen Schlesinger had disclosed Margaret's identity to Margolis's lawyer. Oh, no. Remember this guy, Henry Osterreicher, who had been dirty from the jump. <laughs> According to UPI archives, following Margolis's conviction for murder, Jacqueline filed suit alleging that Schlesinger caused Barbara's death by revealing her identity as an informant. Mean. However, as I'm sure it's no surprise to us, the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals threw out her suit in her lawsuit in December of 1987. They ruled that Schlesinger had immunity from suit for actions taken in his official capacity as an assistant U.S. attorney. I mean, seriously, I can understand why people are like, I don't trust the system. I like you do. You hear these stories and you're just like, I can. I mean, and I and I think obviously like you have big wins and you have where the system does the right thing and bloody blah, blah but you do hear the other side of it and I can see oh, where sure. people are like why would I trust the system? Yeah. So unfortunately, that lawsuit went nowhere. As far as Jenny Su Chen, sadly to this day, as I said, her body has never been found. But due to the bloodstains in her vehicle and her disappearance, she is considered deceased. Mm. It is believed that Jenny Su Chen and Margaret Barbara were the primary targets and the three CBS employees, Leo Karanuki, Edward Benford, and Robert Schultz, were unfortunately collateral damage. And they were all killed in this murder-for-hire plot conjured up by Erwin Margolis and potentially carried out by Donald Nash. Hmm. Arguably, there were many entities involved in solving this case. Local law enforcement officers, federal law enforcement officers, eyewitnesses, ballistic experts, underwater 
excuse me, underwater criminal investigators that recovered evidence. Mm-hmm. The CBS murders as this case is known, is one of the better-known cases that fall under the red-collar crime category. Yeah. Essentially, when crimes that begin as white-collar, such as insurance fraud or embezzlement, but become violent and deadly. Yeah. An American author, Richard Hammer, wrote a book titled The CBS Murders, and he wrote that in 1988, and it does a really deep dive into this case. Richard Hammer posits that the case of the CBS murders was the shift to the views of white-collar versus violent crimes. Hmm. The possibility of Erwin Margolis' involvement in the murders was dismissed over and over initially, even when there was compelling circumstantial evidence. So he essentially is saying, like, this was a big case that started to shift the mindset of white-collar crimes not being violent or turning violent. Oh, which... I, nah, that to me, I'm kind of like, I feel like throughout history, we've we've seen, we've witnessed a ton of examples of quote unquote white collar or upper crust crime yeah. that turns violent. I mean, I feel like isn't that what every but I think like socially at that time and true. even judicially speaking, and and that's what he was saying in his book is. Even though there was a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to Erwin Margolis' involvement, mm-hmm. it kept getting dismissed because he was just kind of considered a white, rich, powerful guy. Yeah. Right? So, well, again, this shows how historically white-collar crime and murder have been two separate crime categories, at least socially and legally speaking Mm -hmm. they kind of put them in two different boxes Mm -hmm. it was a belief held by many law enforcement officials especially back then when murder didn't fit the profile of a white collar criminal right yeah i was gonna say i wonder if it's almost kind of that mentality almost like how you'll hear people say stuff like oh boys will be boys or you know what i mean just kind of that there's really no evidence behind it it's just kind of socially like you said socially acceptable it's like oh well that's just how they act like yeah i mean everybody embezzles a little bit of money here and there but they're not going to kill anybody right murder anybody they're decent people Mm -hmm. there was a one of those like videos on facebook that i was watching where they're like 10 criminals and they range in age and ethnicity and physical appearance tattoos Mm -hmm. you know sharp dressed whatever Mm -hmm. and they had these guys arrange themselves into what they thought was like the most hard time served criminals versus not Mm -hmm. right like they had to wind themselves up to see who served the most time oh and it's interesting because um of course it was like a guy who had what you would stereotypically think of like gang affiliation Mm -hmm. like face tattoos and you know rat tails and shit (laughs) they had him pegged as like the dude you don't mess with with Mm -hmm. as far as number of years served in prison Mm -hmm. and so after they line themselves up then they kind of reveal and they have to like the producers re-line them up and they get to see and the guy who served the most time was a white collar criminal and he had served like 16 years in federal prison or something yeah yeah and they were just like oh my gosh i would never have guessed that so 
even society still has a hard time wrapping their head around, you know, a Bill Gates looking dude who served hard time for some pretty big crimes, Mm -hmm. right? Well, and I mean, in the whole, you know, like serial killer realm of things, they talk about like, that's why Ted Bundy or even um, John Gacy, it's like, you know, Gacy dressed up like a clown and performed at birthday parties. Like, like, who would have thought that he had how many bodies hiding under his floors? You know what I mean? So I think that's a valid, I think that's a valid statement. And like I said, it's, it would be interesting to kind of hear, you know, a sociologist or whoever it it is on Mm -hmm. kind of deep diving into why, you know, why do we, why do we think the way that we think? Are we programmed to think that way? Is it, is it animalistic or primitive? Like, do we just feel safer when we see more clean cut? I don't know. You know, that would be yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah, it would. And so if, if you guys are interested in this case and you really want to dig deeper into it, because of course I just scratched the surface, there's a lot that went into it. You can purchase Richard Hammer's book and I'll link it in the show notes. The book is really cool about obviously covering the case, but stepping, but kind of creating a stepping stone to the understanding of how now this new niche of criminal crimes known as red collar, Mm, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. And in this specific case, all because of greed, you know, what do you always say, Chels? The, the love of money is the root of all evil, the love of money. And it obviously shows its ugly face in this case. Right. And I just want Jenny to be found. I know that. Oh, I hate. I really hate unsolved murders. I that just literally just puts a pit in my stomach. I I hate when bodies can't be put to rest and when families can't find closure. Golly, I hate that so much. Yeah, it's it's the worst. Um, I mean, really is. All of these things are the worst, and they're all the worst. You know what I mean? I know. I know. But that is the the wild red collar case of New York's infamous CBS murders. And I think that's why I like these red collar crimes. I think it's just the complexity of them. And I also, um, in a weird way, am always so interested in, it's like that meme where it'll say like that escalated quickly but it's yeah. so interesting to me on like what started as you know maybe a little bit of embezzling or a little bit of like you know padding the books then it rolled into this and then it rolled into that and then before you know it you have five bodies well and i think that's why it's i think that's why i personally try to take the stance when we talk about perpetrators to not call them like monsters and i know i've used it before especially with ronald dominique right yeah he kind of was but i try not to like over demonize Mm -hmm. perpetrators because i personally believe that every single human is capable of doing awful things oh a hundred percent and i'll never forget when i was early on in my career i had a, a wonderful mentor her name was danielle and she's still a really good friend of mine there was, I had an ethical question, and I don't remember the context, but it was something that I could have easily um, 
it was like paperwork. It was like I was missing a signature. And I was like, we had paper charts. And I was like, I could just sign my name. And I was talking, I was honest with her about it. She was the chief executive officer. And, you know, she, she always handled everything beautifully. And she, I'll never forget that she said, well, it's a signature today. What will it be tomorrow? Ooh. And she said, and if a signature is okay, what will be okay tomorrow? That's such a great point. And so we had this really great discussion about like ethics. And ah. and so even though it was my documents, I had signed off on it. I just forgot to write my name. Ah. And we were being audited and we were going to get dinged because my signature wasn't there. I was like, it'd be really easy for me just to sign it because literally nobody would know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I knew well enough to at least staff it with her. And ever since that conversation, like we had a conversation about, um, again, like a signature today, then what's, what's it going to be tomorrow and yeah. the day after? Yeah. And I remember her saying like, Bailey ethics is the slipperiest slope out there. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I personally have known three or four therapists who have gotten involved with clients Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like sexually gotten involved, right. which is like the biggest no-no we have. Right. And and it didn't start off that way. It started off with an inappropriate comment. Right. Or they say something inappropriately, you don't set a boundary. Right. Yeah. Very little things. And I think humans are the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think psychopaths with a different neural structure might be kind of a different subset. Mm -hmm. But the average human, like when I hear people say, I would never, I could never, I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly think that every human being is capable of being, you know, one of these quote unquote monsters in these cases. Mm -hmm. And I think it's arrogant when we call people monsters. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we try to put them into this like category of being a monster and like being unhuman, if you will, inhuman, unhuman, whatever, then that makes us even more susceptible to being just like them. Mm -hmm. Because if we can justify why we call somebody a monster, then they can justify killing. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, I'm pretty sure Rick had made a comment, Rick Ross had made a comment where he was like, you know, don't ever think that it, that it would never happen to you as far as getting involved in a cult, you know? Oh, yeah. And um, I, when I was uh, subbing for a seventh grade history class, it just so happened that I was showing them a video that was, you know, what we were doing that day, but it was this video, it was on, I think it was how the U.S. was built or what made us or one of those history channel shows and the part that we were covering was the Donner party and Mm -hmm. the cannibalistic happenings Mm -hmm. of the Donner party and I kind of did one of those quick you know quick pep talks if you will with the seventh graders where I was like you know before you start pointing fingers and saying like oh these people are monsters how could they eat somebody else I was like I don't think any of you have ever been put in a situation where you're snowed in for five months. You know what I mean? Like, so it's for sure. It's quick. It's very, very easy for us in the comfort of our ivory towers, 
you know, to say, oh, I would never, I would never forge it. It's the illusion of safety. It is a hundred percent. And I, you know, I think you made a really good point and I obviously won't ramble too much, but I think you made a really good point on um, the fact that you said you went and talked to Danielle about it. Because I've read multiple books and they talk about that really is the most powerful thing you can do in an ethical conflict is voicing it like saying it out loud to another person yeah and well and I remember um I remember and this is just real vulnerability talk from a therapist I had a client that I was physically attracted to I didn't know them but they fit what I would like if I just saw this person walking down the street I'd be like oh I'm attracted to this person right and I was very attracted to this client who walked through my door and it scared me. Mm-hmm. And so once again, I went straight to Danielle and I was like, I am attracted to this person. Mm-hmm. And she was like, excellent. Take a seat, close the door. And we probably spent an hour just staffing, you know, getting supervision, processing that. And I kid you not, 60 minutes of talking about it, I was like cured. It was like yeah. a miracle cure. And after that, and this is the beautiful thing about like supervision and being honest and talking about this stuff, at least for me from a therapist perspective, I was able to walk back into a room with that client, did not, I literally, it's like he transformed. I didn't find him attractive. Yeah. And I viewed him as someone who was very sick and someone who needed my help. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was, it It was just, I just remember it was so powerful for me to be able to shift so significantly, so quickly, just because I was honest and open yeah. and received some really great guidance from somebody, you know, that I respected. And so to this day, like, that's my number one thing as far as like, you know, being a therapist is anytime that I have any thought Mm-hmm. right an intrusive thought whatever right. that is whether it's ethics attraction it doesn't matter i'm right, human right. the first thing i do is i tell my supervisor about it the very first thing i i, I do I, again i think that's not not only is that like awesome but again i so relevant because as a listener right as somebody who listens to these cases i think it is and i know we've already said it but i i just feel like it needs to be said again it really can it really can happen to you oh so easily and like you said if forging a signature your own signature like if that's okay today what's going to be okay tomorrow yeah and i think that's a great reminder for all of us when it's like eh, it's a little white lie it's just a little cut off the edge 100% you know cuz i i truly believe i'll say that's that's my main point is that's kind of why i love red crime is because i don't think it ever starts out with violence i think it literally starts with a slip of the pen a tuck that underneath a folder somewhere i i think it's in a nine times out of ten probably hundred percent probably totally innocent yeah but it grows and with good intentions it usually does it starts off that way too but anyways we i mean i think we could have a whole ted talk about this but Well, but was I was awesome. really excited to cover a red a red collar case, and I and I really want to start getting into also covering some more like white collar crime, mm-hmm. red collar crime, yeah. Instead of just like, and she was kidnapped and killed, and she was kidnapped and killed, yeah. And not that that stuff's not important to cover, right. but I also think that. 
the white collar crimes and the red collar crimes are like the redheaded stepchildren of true crime. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also wanted to tell you, congratulations for getting through all of those really like 13 letter last names in this case. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Because I think every last name you said in this case was like Oppenschneikermiker. Yeah. And honestly, (laughs) covering cases from different countries has helped because, you know, if your brain doesn't work that way and your language doesn't mold to that dynamic, like you have to do research and you're like, I don't know, man. You you know, so I think I think it takes some practice. I was going to say, I don't think we've had a case with harder last names than this one those were some fancy i don't know the junko case was pretty difficult but all right well you guys thanks for hanging out with us through this wild red collar crime ride yeah i loved it i'm here for it let's do some more let's do it if you haven't heard it today you are loved worthy valuable and we will catch you on the flip side Bye, guys. Hey, Wildside Tribe. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wildside Podcast. Make sure to tune in on Wildside Wednesdays. New episodes will drop each Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would love to hear from you. So if you have a wild case recommendation, email us at wildsidepodcast at gmail.com. That's wildside with a C. Or share your thoughts in the comments below. As always, if you haven't heard it today, you're loved, you're worthy, and you're valuable. And we'll catch you on the the flip flip side.